Well, first of all, I'm applauding for you that you're here. I am really glad that you're here. Um, I'm going to be moving around a lot. I am just, uh, I started as an early childhood teacher. So, you know, and you might see me sit on the floor in a minute, but that's just the way we do things. So I know that one of the, the protocols for this kind of conversation is to start with the, the questions, what did I pursue? But I'd like to first start with the purpose. And so a pedagogy of confidence in my eyes is this fearless expectation that all children have the potential for high intellectual performances. Now, where did I get this from? Well, first of all, it's not quixotic. I say performances with a plural, right? Which means that I don't expect everybody has the capability of high intellectual performance in everything that they do. Nobody does. Would you agree with that? Okay, so the issue, though, is how come in the world of urban education, and that's where my heart is, how come we don't talk about high intellectual performances there? We talk about literacy, right? And what's interesting is literacy is really the code word for remediation. Think about that. Because what it's saying in lit literacy is that this is what we're expecting to be the highest form of what, how these students can perform, and that's not what school is really about. School is about actually drawing out the potential in students. And for us, our students in whom we're talking about are what I call school-dependent students. They are depending on us to give them what other children get at home, meaning the enrichment, the money, the, and I don't mean we're giving them the money, but the exposure. And so what I did was take this concept of gifted education, and in a pedagogy of confidence, it is about gifting all students with the kind of exposure, the kind of opportunity, or what I like to say is, in gifted land, as I like to call it, because I used to be the director in New York City, as Jana said, but what is the purpose of gifted education? In gifted education, the purpose is to push a child to the frontier of their intelligence. And it starts with a belief that they have strengths. Isn't that what gifted education does? And so how come that's just not the philosophy of education? How come, right? Because, again, in gifted land, there's a belief. There is this pushing to the frontier of intelligence. It's giving support and it's giving feedback. It's giving opportunities to apply strengths and interests. This should be what is for everybody. But we have been doing the exact opposite for students who are underachieving. We're taking away the enrichment because we have to have a longer literacy period after all. And the irony of that is the kinds of language that you learn through enrichment through the arts, through looking at interdisciplinary kinds of learning is exactly the kind of language that you're tested on on the SAT exams. It's not out of a basal reader. It's not out of a literacy period. It is about how life happens in terms of the application of intelligence. So that is why I put this book together. And I will tell you that this is, you're going to go through, this is a, a, actually a 30-year journey because that's how long ago that I started. I had the great opportunity of uh, teaching in an elementary school, and this will tell me where people are socially, in an open classroom school. So how many people know open classroom? All right. 
those of you, we probably share AARP together as well, right? <laughs> right, right. It's an age thing. It's about an age culture, right? But I say that because the great opportunity I had was to teach the same children for three years in a row. So I felt I was very Piagetian, that I had the opportunity to work and push these students. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in that school, there was a principal who had decided she thought she might want to start a gifted program in the school. You have to understand this is a school that was in a very poor area. All of the children were African-American and Latino, all of them, okay? So now Lois decides she wants to try to put a gifted program in the school, and the psychologist comes to me and says, did you hear what Lois is trying to do? He says, isn't that crazy? You know there aren't any gifted children in this school. That was the, and he used to be my friend, okay? But the battle line was wrong because I said, how does he say that when he doesn't even teach them? Where is this perpetual myth that goes on that says those children aren't gifted, but those are because they took some tests or something like that? And that is where my journey begins. And so I started looking at what is it that you do for students who are labeled gifted that pushes them and inspires them. And that's why the title of the book is about inspiring high intellectual performances. So what I'm going to do is kind of take you on this journey with me through this 30-year uh, odyssey that I had, but bring out some very, I hope, very specific points about how I structured the book, looking at starting with beliefs. What are the beliefs that push students ahead and what are the beliefs that hold them back? We're going to look at the practices that can be put into place that really can divine for intelligence, really cast that net, pull it up, and then take students to the next level. But when I was writing this book, and it's published by Teachers College, they said to me, who is this book really for? Who's, who is the center of the book? Is it students, or is it the teachers, or is it the principals? Who's really the focus? Can you guess what I said? All of them. How can you talk? See, you can't talk about gifting students without teachers being master teachers, right? Because when somebody is being gifted, when you're apprenticing, and I like to call this apprenticing and giftedness, and if you're apprenticing in giftedness, somebody's got to be the master teacher. So this is about the reciprocal relationships that happen among teachers, students, and the principal in the school so that you can, in fact, create the kind of environment that a pedagogy of confidence where we have this belief that everybody has this particular ability. So now, again, that was my purpose, and I'd like to share what pushes me even more? See, when I wrote this for teachers, it was because of the amazing fear that teachers in urban schools experience. They have fear. It's about two Fs, fear and fault, right? That is what they get bombarded with. And what we haven't discovered enough yet for the powers that be that come out with all of these policies is that when you are constantly under a state of fear and fault, your body lets off chemicals that are called cortisol, that's one type of chemical, that you go into stress mode. And when you are in stress, you cannot perform at your highest level. 
you can't. So you have teachers in stress, you have students in stress, and you've got the principal in stress. So what we're saying is, what happens when the teachers are feeling stressed and it gets then played out for the students? So I like to share this poem. By this student, I'll give you a little bit of background. So I was mentoring a teacher in Indianapolis. She was a first, by the time I got to her, she was a second year high school English teacher. Second year, they put her in with the students who were in the lowest English quartile. Isn't that typical, though? We're going to get the brand new teacher. We're going to give her the students who are having the hardest time. Except she did the same thing I did. She kept those students for all four years as their English teacher. So when I walk in, it's the second year that they have Audra. And what happens is, they, these students are, all, she is the epitome of a pedagogy of confidence, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what she did. But basically what wound up happening is, what I noticed is these students performed at the highest level when they were in Audra's class. But when they left Audra's room and went to the other classes, they were still underperforming. So my question to them was, what is it that you would like to tell the other teachers in this school? What is it that they say that you can't do that you tell them you must do? What do you understand about this? And this is one student's poem. You think that I don't know that you think I got an F because I'm lazy and indifferent, but maybe I'm just under-challenged and under-appreciated. Deep down, I am begging you to teach me to learn and create, not just to memorize and regurgitate. I'm asking you to help me find my own truth. I'm asking you to help me find my own beauty. I'm asking you to help me see my own unique truth. We need a miracle, one for every kid who subconsciously wants to be pushed to the edge, taken to the most extreme limits. I want you to make my brain work in a hundred different ways every day. I'm asking you to make my head ache with knowledge, spin with ideas. I want you to make my mind my most powerful asset. This is just an example of what the entire class wrote. So when you see something like this, you say, how can you call those students under-motivated when in fact what he is asking for is exactly what pushes learning along. And so we're going to look at that. What were the kinds of things that Audra was doing in the classroom that now we have titled high operational practices that really push children to the edge? So now I will start with what kind of my focus research question was for this book. And that was, can practices employed for students labeled as gifted be designed into a pedagogy that builds in teachers the confidence and competence to elicit high intellectual performances and behaviors so that, notice the font gets even larger here, low expectations about the intellectual capacities of marginalized urban students are transformed to belief and high expectations. And that is really my goal. How do we not look at them as low achievers? And maybe what we should be saying is that they are underachievers. That is not that they have low skills, they are underdeveloped skills. And as soon as you lose language like that, it shifts 
where the issue is. It's not about the students. It's about what they might not have been privy to, the kinds of experiences that we know really do challenge students and make them extremely motivated. So my work is based on the work of uh, a cognitive psychologist named Ruben Feuerstein. Does anybody know Ruben Feuerstein's work? One person, two people, three people. Now, I'm going to tell you why this is so pathetic, though, because Reuven was really a student of Jean Piaget, literally. So how many people know Jean Piaget? Okay, right? Jean Piaget was a cognitive psychologist. Reuven was a cognitive psychologist. And if you study Jean Piaget, you would know that he always wore a beret just like that also. So Reuven was Jean Piaget's student, and I am Reuven Feuerstein's student. So I feel I have six degrees of separation from Jean Piaget, right? Sometimes I even wear that beret, you know, I'm really getting into it. But I want to share with you how I evolved into this whole theory was studying about the work of Reuven Feuerstein, who was originally Romanian, escaped during World War II, and goes to Switzerland which is where he meets John Piaget, studies cognitive psychology, but then goes to Israel. This is right after World War II. And he is in charge, Reuven is in charge, of giving the Stanford Binet IQ test to the students who are called displaced Jewish children. They are coming in from war-torn Europe. How do you think they did on the Stanford Binet IQ test? Not only not well, they were scoring retarded. And so the question is, and this was Reuven's question, is Israel now going to just have a huge special ed population? Because, see, that's what we would do here, right? We would just say, okay, we just have lots of kids in special ed. Or is it that the test does not test their potential? So you will hear, as I'm talking about him, where my work comes from. But also he then said, why are they not doing well? Right? The first thing he said is they were socioculturally deprived. Whose culture had they been deprived of while they were either in concentration camps or orphanages? Whose culture was it? Their own. See, when we say kids in urban schools are culturally deprived, what are we, what are we implying? Right? That they don't have what the Eurocentric kind of culture that is supposed to be America, and actually that's not America anymore. America is such a mixed place, right? But the issue here is for Reuven, when I first read about his work, I was back in that school I told you, the open classroom school. I'm reading this, and I said, when he's talking about his students being socioculturally deprived, that sounds like my children. It sounds like these children I am teaching. And he said, when you are socioculturally deprived, it really affects your intellectual development. Because when you have what he calls mediation with your culture always being a context to connect to, it teaches you to adapt in certain situations. It gives you the idea of imagining, if I have strong roots, I can fly pretty high. And I read about his work, and I said, I don't even know this man, but I want to study his work. And that is then I proceeded to get my doctorate in his work, never meeting him, though, just studying his work, studying the Atlanta school system, where he had a program and still does called Instrumental Enrichment, which is a thinking skills, explicit thinking skills program that is focused on intellectual development. 
and I'll talk more about that later. But what he said 50 years or 60 years ago now is that the, he called it structural cognitive modifiability, that he believes 60 years ago that the brain could be modified to actually function at higher levels. Now, that was really something because they didn't have MRIs back then to say, well, we can really see it. But he was showing it by the kind of discourse he was having with students, how he would ask students conceptual questions. He would bridge it to their background. He would then push the questions farther. Then he would teach them about a concept even more deeply and come back and assess once again with a different kind of questioning. And he could see growth and changes in perspectives and even language students were using just by that interaction. So I'm reading about this again and I'm saying, this is the work for me to study because the dissertation was about identifying giftedness, no surprise, in underachieving students. The other two things that he said though is change the input and the brain changes accordingly. Now what, what does that sound like in current day what science says that now? What is the name of the science that says that? It's all about changing the neural connections. It's neuroscience. How many years later? And that is it. Why does neuroscience say that? Well, what else does neuroscience tell us, which is so incredible? I'm going to give you just a real fast kind of neuroscience 101 that kind of supports my research because it supported Reuven. I will tell you that last year, if you know Reuven, Reuven is about 91 years old now, right? He wrote the foreword to my book, which was, I have to tell you how I met him, but that's, a, that's another story. But the issue is he called me last year and he said, you know what, Yvette, and he lives in, in um, Israel, and he said, you know what, Yvette, I am so glad to still be alive to see that neuroscience has validated what I said 60 years ago. You get chills even knowing, and I said, you're right. And so what have we learned from neuroscience, though, that has complete application to what I'm talking about right now? That in the brain, 90% of the brain, brain cells are really just for regulation, taking care of what you do with your body. There's only 10% of your brain that actually is made up of the neurons. And the neurons are obviously the nerve cells that are involved and learning and thinking. Now, how does that really happen? So this is a picture of a neuron, two actual neurons connected by what's called an axon. Now this is any of the important part. What you'll know, notice is around the axon, which is the link, it looks yellow, it's the myelin sheath. And the myelin sheath is like a conduction. It's like um, what you put, uh, insulation, right? And what happens is that when that myelin sheath gets strong and thicker, it helps the connectivity across neurons. Learning is about the connection of neurons. Now, learning means that it's not something doesn't just happen once, that you apply, you do, you actually uh, elaborate on. That's what helps the myelin sheath grow. But this is the interesting thing about this. And this is the proof that we've been doing the exact wrong thing for underachieving students. They say, how do we build that axon so that there's faster connectivity? So thinking and learning can be more efficient and effective. Well, they said first building on past information, 
We used to say that parlance used to be prior knowledge, right? But the main thing was always starting from strengths. So why do you think it would be starting from strengths? How do you develop a strength? What is happening in the brain while you're developing a strength? How do you get good at something? You have to do what? You have to practice it. You have to apply it. But you also have to be interested in it. See, that's the caveat. Now, why is that so important? Because when you have a deep interest, you are paying close attention to the work. And you are then actually able to push it forward in a way that's more expansive and connected. So I then start looking at this research, and one, it substantiates what Ruven Feuerstein has been saying. Two, he's not the only one. Piaget used to say, if you want high-level intelligence, you have to give high-level activities. All right? Think again what we do to students who are underperforming. We talk about remediation. We don't talk about intellectual development and exposure, right? So what winds up happening as a result of that? Come on. There you go. Nope. I want you to go back. Well, that's all right. I'll tell you what it said. I'm afraid to touch this anymore. <laughs> but what it was was looking at what are the other questions that I looked at then in the study? Well, the first one was where did this focus on weakness come from anyway as the answer. Because guess what? If focusing on weakness was the answer, like we do, especially how many people here are familiar with Title I programs? None. Okay. <laughs> well, think about this. Title I started from a very good place. Gus Hawkins was a congressman along with uh, many other people who said, for children who are underachieving, we should give money to be able to pay for the kind of enrichment and support that they need. This is where the problem happened, though. In order to get the money for Title I, what did you have to show? Low achievement, and what else? Low socioeconomic. And the more low achievement you could show, the more money that you got. In fact, it got so perpetuated that that was the goal. Let's look for the weaknesses to the point that nobody's talking about the strengths. It looks like that is what you're supposed to focus on, which wouldn't be so bad if then you did things to develop the weakness but from a strengths place. In other words, using what students are good at, even if it means what they're interested in, to help move the learning along. That would be different, but that's not what's happened. So what has generated and perpetuated low expectations for urban or marginalized students? Well, first we were just talking about the myths. And what are the myths? What are the myths? One is the intelligence is fixed and related to race. And it, even when people say that's not what we say anymore, yeah, what is the achievement gap? Immediately, who are you comparing in the achievement gap? It's compared around racial lines, isn't it? And you're using standardized achievement tests, which are very much constructed the same way as an IQ test is. It's based on what you know at a particular time. It really doesn't, you cannot measure, really measure potential. As Reuven said, there is only one being who can really tell you the potential of someone, and you can't see that being as he would say. All right, 
Focus on weakness. This is another myth. We just talked about it. Reverses underachievement. IQ and SAT predict potential. Gifted education only benefits those labeled as gifted. These are the recursive myths that just keep going on, keep going on. If you're talking about race to the top, if you're talking about all the little iterations, these are the myths that are really bad behind that. I'm going to show you some of the research we did behind that. <clears throat> Excuse me. From those myths have come marginalizing language that comes from educational policy, like the term minority. Think about this. When you say somebody is the minority leader of the house, what does that mean? They don't have the power. Isn't that what it means? All right, so as soon as you use language like that, and one of my new terms that they use now that really makes me crazy that's not up there is subgroup. Right? Isn't that what you... What does that imply, that you're less than, that you're under? It's not that you're different. That's not what subgroup sounds like, especially if you're going to really look at the etymology of that word or the morphology of it. Let's, let's talk about the language. Or look at all of the terms, disadvantage, low achievers, disability, the gap. All of them are very marginalizing, and they perpetuate the myths above. All right, so the problem is where did the terms come from? We know they came from the feds because it was about categorical funding, right? Or it was about uh, gerrymandering or all kinds of different things. Now, what is the effect, though, on adolescents? I will tell you that my research is predominantly around adolescents. Know that that doesn't mean middle school. See, people have this idea that you go into seventh grade or sixth grade, you're an adolescent, and when you leave at eighth grade, you're not an adolescent anymore. And that's not true at all, because adolescence is really all about puberty, which is a biological issue. And what they are finding now is that puberty can last up until 21 and 22 years old. Now, that could be a scary thought, right? <laughs> that could be a really scary thought. But it also has a lot of promise because, see, it's during adolescence that students do like to push to the edge. They will try to push and see how far they can take something. That can be a positive, though, if it's used in a way that helps them explore more about their own intelligence, pushing themselves to the edge. But look at what happens when you use that kind of language. That kind of language is actually called positional language. It's power over as opposed to power with. The other is that kind of language really affects what we call the entity theory. A lot of you know Carol Dweck's work, right? Carol Dweck, what does she say? That's about where students believe that their intelligence is fixed. Or the whole idea of stereotype threat. That's Claude. He's right here in your institution, right? In fact, I listened to Claude when he did that talk right here. The stereotype threat. Or illiteracy. What is illiteracy? Illiteracy is when students are acting totally literate outside of school. They're doing all kinds of new literacy work around their own canons, right? The, own, the things that they like to talk and study about, and they're very good at it. Now, what are the practices, though, that have been reflective of the myths and the marginalizing language? So this is what we did. So Janice said that my organization is called the Nat National Urban Alliance for Effective Education. And we are partnering with districts all around the country, very different, but all of them come to us because they believe that they have an enormous amount of underachievement that they want to address differently. 
right? So we have this pedagogy of confidence. They want to know how to really get into that. How do you start from an assets-based instead of from a negative-based? So when you think about this kind of work, we go into the districts, and I've been working with superintendents, and I say to the superintendents, so, and all of them who work with us will say they are totally into equity, right? And then it's an interesting question. Are you into equity that's like this and just keeps going like this? Everybody's going up this way. Or are you equity like this where you're really leveling up? Or are you more into a J curve instead of the bell curve where everybody's going up with enormous growth? So they will say, these superintendents, no, it's, it's definitely the latter, blah, blah, blah. So I say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want you to think about what's going on in your district right now in terms of practices and structures. And so I start with three of the myths. You'll see in the white that we just talked about. And then I say to them, do you have any instructional practices, assessment, or structures that you can now think about that really do reflect those myths? And these are the ones that come up all the time. Think about this, the idea of static test, where you're just saying, you know, just see how much somebody knows at this moment, but thinking that that's going to be really telling you about their potential. Class tests where there are narrow sets of, uh, of uh, answers. Pacing charts. How many people are familiar with pacing charts? They are really, if you don't know what they are, that's where the district tells every teacher, this is what page you should be on every day of the year. And if you're not there, you will be penalized, all right? Those are pacing charts. Now, what does that say for how intelligence grows? It doesn't say anything. It's about control. It's about really control. The whole idea of looking at the focus on weakness or marginalizing literacy. So what do I mean, again, about that, though? When people say in schools that they are doing data mining, you've heard that, right? That's supposed to be a really good thing. We're going to mine out data. What are they always looking for, though? Yeah, where the kids are low. Because you don't go to affluent districts where they're saying, we're going to do data mining. That language doesn't even come up. Why? Because everybody's doing well here. You know? We work in a lot of affluent districts also. But these are districts that have a changing demographic. And they're worried about, and from coming from a good place, though, they're worried about how do we still make sure as these children are coming in that we're going to provide for them so they can not only catch up but eclipse what's happening to them and comparatively to others. But my point is even tracking. I cannot tell you every district I've done this in, they still have tracking in those districts. And this is where people say, oh, no, we're, you know, we're, we're into equity, we're into social justice. We're, but we have to track, don't we? Because that's the only way to really, that's what the kinds of things. So what am I saying? That the work first looked at where do beliefs take us where we are ignoring the incredible potential of, of students. That the brain is programmed to learn. It is. And so when students are not learning in school or acting under-motivated, it is not because they don't want to learn, because they are programmed to learn. It is because school is not connecting to their stories. School is not the place that they believe has promise for them. So how do we change that? What are the kinds of things that we should be doing? And that is where we got into this whole 
So I'm going to give you a little quiz. I do a lot with symbolic representations. This is not a mathematical formula. It is a symbolic representation. Obviously now, and it is from not only cognitive science, but again, I told you, Reuven Feuerstein, is, he didn't come up with the symbolic rep representation. He came up with the principles that are represented in the symbols. All right, so what is the L, obviously? Learning. What do you think? Now, what he is saying is to engage students so they are motivated to learn what has to be going on for them one is right. That one is, did you say, what was that? You and me. That's very funny. Somebody else said that the other day. That could be you and me. And the reason I say it could be because it is all about relationships. That Reuven Feuerstein would say that in socio-mediation, it's all about how a teacher and a child relate to each other so that the teacher can constantly be pushing and the student has confidence in that teacher pushing them. But the U is understanding, right? It's understanding. For school, students have to deeply understand the concepts you're trying to teach them. If they don't get it, if three-quarters of the class is saying, and this is why I love adolescents, because they will say, I don't get it. And you know what? When they say it, they're not kidding. They don't get it. It's not, I don't want to get it. It is I don't get it, which means we need to, in mediation, you keep pushing and introducing the concept from different perspectives so that they do say, I got it. Okay, I got it now. What do you think the M stands for? And it's not meaning, because meaning is implied with understanding. Motivation. That for a student to be engaged, they have to feel motivated. But we are the ones who have to help them feel that motivation. They have to feel, one, that they are capable. I will tell you, student motivation is directly connected with a teacher's belief in their ability to teach those children. See, because kids know when people don't think that they can learn. They know that. And so they're not motivated. The other two C's, anybody want to take a stab? What do you think the other two C's are? This is really the core of the book is around this particular symbolic representation. How do we help them understand? How do we motivate them? Two C's. One is in the title of the book. Yes. All right. All right. That's a little leading. And in order to feel confident, you have to feel competent. You have to feel, feel you got what it takes. So that means having the kinds of not only skills that you're exposed to, but the opportunities to apply those skills so you can see where those particular skills can get you. So without talking more, I'd like to share a video clip with you. Um, this is in a school district, one of the places we are working in about 14 districts in the Minnesota area. In Minnesota, they have two particular programs. One's called the West Metro Education Program. This is where districts on one side of the river around Minneapolis, these are all suburban districts, got together to go for voluntary desegregation money. So as students who are from, Minnesota, from Minneapolis are getting bussed out, for free to any one of the ring suburbs. And of course, as the, as the suburb gets farther and farther from Minneapolis, right, it gets less diverse 
and very affluent. But these students can go out to those particular districts. On the other side of the river, the same holds true, but they're called EMID, which, which is the East Metro Integration Program. Same concept, though. Both of those programs, places, districts, and they're a combination of districts, reached out to us to say, how do we help these kids? How do we become more social, uh, uh, culturally responsive in our teaching? How do we change the belief system in these students? So we have been working on this pedagogy of confidence in those districts. And so what I'd like to share with you now is a video clip of one of the little boys. It's about two minutes. It's very short. Um, but it is about him getting on the bus from Minneapolis and going out to his school district. Now, what I want you to, I haven't even gotten to explain the strategies that we're talking about in a pedagogy of confidence, but you will see and hear them. And so what you'll also hear is what we mean by mediation. So I'd like to share that with you, and this is going to be on our, where's my buddy? You're up there, all right. So you're going to make the switch now. Okay, we're going to try this one. Now it calls for the glasses. Oh, I must tell you, this is called In a Perfect World. How many people know the performer called Prince? Okay, all right. You know where he's from. He's from Minneapolis, correct? The woman that he, I'm not sure if he's still married to her, but um, Manuela, um, she was very much into wanting, giving us funding to have students articulate not only their vision for the world, but it was really more about how the arts could influence them, but how they saw themselves as capable learning individuals. So that is the funding wound up being called, or I should say the uh, program that we did was called uh, In a Perfect World. And so I am now going to, you know why this is making me crazy? Because I am not used to this, this uh yeah. Okay, buddies. Come on. Oh, yes, that's right. Thank you. Wait, don't go far. Come back. Come back. <laughs> He's here. Why not? You know? That's part of a pedagogy of confidence. Use your resources. Okay. Hi, my name is Anthony. I go to Northeast Middle School. I get up at 7. I try to get dressed by 7 for 7 so I can be out to catch the bus. And I catch it all the way downtown. And then I get off. And I wait for about 10, 10 minutes. And then the next bus comes and I hop on and go drops me off right by the school. There's time when I feel unsafe and when I feel like I'm going to need somebody to walk with. There's about 604 students here. And there's a group, a program called Pre, Pre National Baccarat that I'm in. And it like helps me for college. It like help you plan ahead. So like the this year I was doing stuff that was gonna help me prepare for high school. And so next year when I'm in high school I'll be getting ready for college. So 
that's a good program, and I have to maintain a B average just to be in the program. I thought Northeast was a better school because, like, most of the teachers, they're, like, focused on you. Northeast is, like, focused on what you're doing and what your goals are, and they try to help you accomplish it. Okay. Okay. They expect us to do a lot of things, and us, some of us eighth graders show that we that we like being in Northeast, and we try to meet those expectations and goals that they have set for us. Government should have unlimited authority to pass laws. Well, I have this class that's called pre-IB language arts. It's like advanced language arts class, and they like help. We're like doing ninth grade stuff that we're that we'll be doing in high school. I'm glad that I chose this class, Ms. X class, than the regular eighth grade class because what they're doing is regular grammar and we like already knew that. And so we were like ready to take charge and put everything that we know into action. Now we're doing the part where we're taking action. My real issue that the, the Hurricane Katrina evacuation, how it wasn't planned out right. And so I'm getting together with a group and we're gonna like take a, make a survey, and we're gonna see who's gonna like help with the group and who's not gonna help. And then all those that's gonna help, we're gonna like take a fundraiser, and we're gonna raise money to send down to Hurricane Katrina evacuees. At school, a lot of people said that he's not gonna be successful or he's gonna fail. But I take that in and you turn it into something positive and achieve the goal that they say they're not going that you're not going to achieve and achieve it and prove it to them that you can do anything. I'm going to stop right there. Notice notice what Anthony said in the poem that I started with, Siam. You know, you think that I don't know that you think that and he's saying people think that I'm not going to do well, right? It's back to that myth. And see, that's the thing. Often people don't think that students get it. They know. They can tell you about the gap. They can tell you what it means. They can articulate it. What is the point here? First of all, did you see what he ended with? He several times mentioned the word goals, right? The goals that he has, that the teacher has to have high expectations. But the idea of goal setting for students in a very formal way becomes part of the pedagogy of confidence right up front. Start from the strengths, not only identifying those strengths, but having students articulate how are they going to use their strengths for goals that they'd like to set for themselves as learners. And you, he's already talking about high school, what he's going to do in high school, how he's going to perform. And you know, you could tell by them talking, him talking about Hurricane Katrina that this is a few years old. This guy is already going to college, right? That was eight years, that was about four years ago. Did he get into every school he applied in? Absolutely. Because the expectation was there for him. He knows what he has to do, and he says he just needs to be pushed. So let's see. Now we're going to shift back over. So I want to take this time now to really kind of analyze some of what Anthony said in terms of putting it into practice and why this is so important. How many people here are familiar with the new Common Core standards? Yes, something near and dear to our hearts. Well, in a pedagogy of confidence, it's very interesting because in the pedagogy, it's focusing on high intellectual thinking 
but lead, that leads to performances. Now think about, these are the common core standards, and what you'll notice if you look at the English side is that students have to be able to demonstrate independence, build strong content knowledge, be able to deal with variant tasks, comprehend and critique value evidence, use technology, understand the perspectives of others. If you are only doing literacy, as the goal for those kids, they will never meet those standards. Because to get into the last bullet point there is what we call dialogical thinking. It's thinking from somebody else's perspective. That is a very deep process, and it's actually something that adolescents are supposed to be able to do. That's what starts differentiating adolescents, that they can go from an egocentric perspective to really decentering coming outside and looking from other perspectives. And here you go. This is what the common core standards are saying are going to be the expectation. Or look at this, make sense of problems and persevere in solving them. This is the first time in standards that they're not only looking at thinking and content, but dispositions and behaviors, which means that we have to have a pedagogy of confidence that goes on in classrooms where they are push to the edge, but with the support that has them feel that they're going to be able to do it. Because that's what you heard from Anthony. They push us, but I know I'm going to be able to do this. That's, that's because my teachers do. They're, they're there for me. That is what the, the essence of the pedagogy of confidence. So I push it a little bit further. How many people here are familiar with Bloom's taxonomy? All right, so remember, and in gifted land especially, when gifted education really got big in the 1970s, it really started in the 50s, but in the 70s, people, everybody thought that for gifted students, the best way to look at curriculum was to use Bloom's taxonomy because we're going to get kids into analyzing and synthesizing and evaluating, except Bloom's taxonomy is about this much of the territory of what the brain is capable of to do in different kinds of thinking experiences. And what we're saying in a pedagogy of confidence that we should be pushing from a cognitive skills to formal operational level that Piaget talked about, where they can get into critical analysis, analogous, analogous, I can't even talk. You know why I can't talk? I have to tell them. I did not go to sleep last night. Literally, I was working all night. So there are two ways that it always becomes evident. One is in remembering and the other is talking. So when I thought about how much I was going to be talking today, I had great trepidation. However, you'll take the ride with me. All right, hypothetical reasoning, dialogical thinking, syllogistic thinking, theorize, philosophize. What am I saying? This is what Anthony was engaged in. Did he shy away from it? This is what Siam was asking for. Push me to the edge. Make my mind work in a thousand different ways. That is the pedagogy of confidence. But how does that happen? What are the practices? I like to share this because this is totally Reuven Feuerstein. And what he says is, when we have students who have underdeveloped skills, we have to be there to mediate for them. The mediator, always the organism. This is real cognitive psychology 101 as well. But what he says is, as a mediator, when you're introducing students to stimulus, the things that you're trying to teach them, before you expect them to do anything with that task, you've got to make sure that they have had the exposure, the practice in the kinds of skills, and the opportunities to discourse, to talk about that 
whatever it is you're going to be teaching from a conceptual level before you even get into the text that you're going to be using. He's saying we have to have them so ready, we have to have their brains so primed that when the tasks actually come up, they feel not only confident, but they have had the context, the frame of reference expanded to the point that they can do something that we like to call inferential thinking. Because remember, inferential thinking is where you have to be able to get into the experience of the author to be able to move further. But how do we ensure that our students have that kind of experience? And so we take this same idea and look on the other side before they respond. What are the experiences that we're going to put in place that allow them to reflect back on what they did, to make comparisons to what they were just learning and their lives outside before they're asked to do a particular task so that they can be functioning again from this place of confidence? So I know I have just a few more minutes, so I want to push forward. Translation. This is where it really gets into it. a pedagogy of confidence. There are certain understandings that we have. The first understanding, first of all, is that cognition is very much affected by your cultural frame of reference. Would you agree with that? Your culture. And understand, when we talk about culture in a pedagogy of confidence, we're not talking about race, right? Because first of all, race is not a culture, right? Because we can all be the same race, and you could be from Georgia, and I can be from uh, Vermont, and we could have, or, or Jamaica, and we can have different cultural frames of references. For us, culture is whatever is meaningful and relevant to the students. So in a pedagogy of confidence, the teacher is always trying to make cultural references. Now, how does she do that, or he? It's not about reading 10 books on African-American kids or Latino kids or Hmong children. It's about setting up experiences where there's so much dialogue beforehand that you understand what their reference points are what they know that's like that, how they can make comparisons to this big concept. So then if we, when we make that connection to their culture, we're also going to affect their language because language is a demonstration of how students are thinking and how do we build on that. So in our work, we say besides starting from strengths, it's always how do you prepare to make connections to the student's cultural frame of reference so that you can take them to higher levels. Again, this is extremely Boyashtinian. Now, I'm going to end with two things here. So, in a pedagogy of confidence, if you're focusing on high intellectual performance, and this is what we're doing with the teachers, we say to them, well, what are the kinds of thinking you would expect to see when students are functioning at a high intellectual level? So they come up with these ideas. But if you notice, they're also the same ideas that are in the Common Core Standards, which is interesting because what we're saying is the Common Core Standards are pushing for intellectual capacity building. They haven't said it that way, but that is exactly what it is. So then as teachers are coming up with, well, what is that kind of thinking, then what do you think is going in the frame? What's in the frame? Yeah, the kind of activities and strategies that you should be including in your pedagogy that build that kind of thinking. Getting kids into creating philosophies. And I was telling uh, our, our friends from Albuquerque today that I'm telling you, 
Students in kindergarten can tell you about their philosophy. They have all kinds of, and they theorize, they philosophize all the time. They might not know that word, but the idea here is getting into multimodal communication. Get, these two things I really want to structure or, or hone in on. The idea of morphology and etymology or metalinguistics, teaching kids how language works because they're constantly being tested with language, aren't they? So if they're not using and understanding how language functions, how can they do well? So they have to really understand it and move that along. So I'm going to get to, I'm going to forward and get here. And this is where I'm going to close. In a pedagogy of confidence, there are seven things that we call high operational practices. They are the kinds of practices that have been studied in gifted education, but have been substantiated in both cognitive and neuroscience research. That is what my book and the second part of the book is all about, the practices. These are the practices, and it gives the the neurology and the biology and the um, cognitive psychology about all of this. So in, we noticed this in the beginning, identifying and activating student strengths. In a pedagogy of confidence, the whole first month of school is just identifying student strengths. Not their weaknesses, because you can just open a file drawer and you'll find that. Somebody's written them all down for you because data mining has happened. So you have files of that, but do you know what they're good at? Do you know what their interests are? We have the students actually keep portfolios of their strengths so that they can go back and see how strengths have developed over time. But the important thing about this idea of strength is not only that the neurological connections, the connections among the neurons are so tight when you're building on a strength, but when you're building from strength, when you are asking students to work around their strengths, their body lets off chemicals that actually increase the connections. Those chemicals are called endorphins. You know endorphins, like when you're running and you feel really good about it? Endorphins, dopamine, oxytocin, those are the kinds of chemicals that actually increase the connectivity around neurons. Looking at how we build relationships, not only between students and teachers, did Anthony talk about his relationship with his teachers? Absolutely. He's in that school. He feels that he has bought those teachers know him. You know, how many people saw Avatar? Do you remember in Avatar when you wanted to show somebody you really connected with them what they said? Anybody remember what they said? They don't say, I love you. They would say, I see you. And you see, our students want to be seen. They don't want to be the kids in the gap. They want to be seen and nurtured. But the other idea of relationships here is relationships among the kinds of thinking that's built on relationships, like comparative analysis, like analogies, like similes, like syllogisms. Those are all the kind of thinking that are really based on how the brain is making connections among ideas. And it's very critical to the formation of neural connections. The idea of providing enrichment, we've talked about. Another reason enrichment is so important is, again, you want to expand a student's frame of reference. But if you look at it from a neurobiological perspective, they have done studies that show that with enrichment and then dialogue with feedback and reflection, you can actually change the shape of the neurons in the brain. 
They've done that kind of study with mice, but they've done it with people as well since we have MRIs. And the kind of change that happens in the brain pushes innovation. That's the kind of result of those connections is innovation. So think about 21st century learning. That's what we're trying to push students into. Incorporating prerequisites, what does that mean? That just means before the students even get into this unit, what do you have to expose them? Remember in the mediation, what do you have to give them? The kind of thinking, the con conceptual understanding, the exposure that's going to get them where they need to go. The last two things I will say is situating learning in the lives of students. How do you, whatever concept you're about to teach, how do you, again, as I said earlier, make the connection to their frames of references? And I will tell you that all students love to have connections made to current events. We used to teach current events years back. They want, see, because even if you think they're not interested, I remember I have my own students that I'm working with in Newark, and it was interesting about two years ago I was working with them, and I said, listen, what are some situations that you feel really bother you and you'd like, we, because we were doing a publication and it was called the Justice Epistles, and they were writing to congressmen and all, excuse me, all that kind of thing. And I can't tell you how many students in that class said that what was, ha what was really bothering them was what was happening to the teachers in Wisconsin. Isn't that interesting? This is Newark, New Jersey. They're telling me they're, you would think, really? But see, you don't know what they're connecting to. And so the more we bring in current events, the more they understand why they're studying what they're studying in the first place. And the last thing I'm going to end with is this whole idea of amplifying student voice. What does that mean for us? That means where you're training students to actually go through experiences with teachers that they are dialoguing and discoursing at a, a relationship that really is reciprocal. In our work, the students actually attend professional learning with the teachers. When we're doing PD around learning, we have identified cohorts of students and we keep rotating that cohort who come in and attend with the teachers. I was going to show you a video clip on that, but maybe during questions I can show you a three-minute one from um, Ed Week when they came to watch the students in uh, Newark, my class, my group there, you'll see them. But the idea is what happens when students are learning with teachers? One, and I was telling the group earlier today, if, how many people know the work of James Comer? All right, I will tell you that James Comer and Reuven Feuerstein were very good friends as well. So was Vygotsky. So was Paolo Freire. They were all buddies. And you could see why. They all kind of, they're in the same mind-melting kind of situation. And I will tell you that the, t the idea of pedagogy of confidence really first started as a title when I heard Paolo Freire talk about, what was his first book? Pedagogy of the Oppressed. The second was Pedagogy of Hope. I remember listening to him speak, and I said, you know, hope still isn't enough. You've got to have confidence. It's got to be where I know that these students can do it. But in amplifying having students learn together, the students and teachers then co-design lessons. The teachers have the content, but the kids come up with the priming part. What are we going to use to get the whole class so engaged and, and interested that they're going to be playing high attention to it? What will the, that intention be? In that amplifying student voice also, you know, in many of our districts, um, 
they have uh, many students where the older children have, have custody of their, they're custodial with their younger, like their five or six kids in the family and the oldest one. So one of the things that happen after students learn about learning is we have the students work with the teachers in parent training. The students and teachers co-train parents. So it's a whole different way of approaching the community. And the last one is how we amplify student voice by actually having this kind of first national and now international project-based learning where students are working virtually with students from newer kids were working with San Francisco kids and they were also working with kids from uh, Greene County, Georgia. But now we're going to be extending that. They'll be working with some kids in India. They'll be working with kids in England. Why? Because that's the 21st century, guys. But pushing them to a level where that they have to really understand people from other cultural perspectives. So I'm going to close this by saying that in a pedagogy of confidence, we become fearless. We are fearless about our ability to elicit the, the kind of intellectual potential that shows students that they are, in fact, these incredible beings with this incredible ability so that they can get more into self-directed learning and be self-actualized. So as the Common Core Standards say, they're not only college ready, they're not only career ready, they're ready to realize who they are as individuals. So on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Show the video. Okay, the clip. Where's my buddy? He said, okay, I'm back here. He's like the Wizard of Oz back there, right? Okay, escape. Now we're going to go. All right, so let me give you a little bit of background. Here we are. So... This is, you're going to see, these are Newark students. They have been working. This is my group. I've had them over the course of a half a year, but they've also, what you're going to see is them working with teachers in shared PD and shared professional development. Then after the students go through the shared PD, the students go into classrooms and teach other students. But when I say teach, it is not just about um, tutoring. They create lesson plans using what we call a pedagogical flow map. They know how to start with the big concept. They know how to do priming, processing, and retaining for mastery. And so what you'll see and what you'll hear is that experience going on. Put these glasses back on. Okay. Don't tell me it's not going to work. Now, now playing or not playing? It's not playing. Ah, this is it. Oh, this is pathetic. Oh, here it is. There it was. <laughs> I got a lot of compliments from other teachers saying they think when I grow up I'm going to be a very good teacher. They said that I, I, I taught the kids well. They understood what they was doing. Oh, fragging. No, no, it's 
Yeah. There was there was like the the best. Uh, I should maybe keep talking while this gets. Uh, yeah, while it loads. Up. Learning group. I felt proud. Yeah, would definitely do that. I maybe just because yeah, it felt like I was, I was doing saying. very good. It was one of the best feelings that I had in life. Part of the problem that we experience with our students is that we don't allow them to be a part of the teaching and the learning process. Now it seems to be going okay too, doesn't it? Okay, oh, yeah, now we'll probably. Students <laughs> don't get it because they're not involved in it. They they're removed from what goes on in the classroom as you allow them to see what goes on, to see the steps, to see the preparation goes into planning, it becomes more meaningful to them. It has to be meaningful to them in order for them to understand it, in order for them to want to learn. They have to see what goes into learning. What we hope the teachers will gain is, is twofold. One thing we hope they'll gain is a sense of uh, empathy, that they may have a sense of what it feels like to be a student learner and actually have a chance to learn from students. Another thing that we hope teachers will gain is a chance to see their students as leaders. So the students that are leading the professional development may be students that teachers have seen as leaders in the past, but they may not be students that teachers would identify as leaders. We also hope that the students gain a sense of empathy. We hope that students have a chance to see the amount of energy and concern that teachers pour into planning and designing instruction. But we also hope students see themselves as leaders and they see themselves as people who have a say in their own learning. When we talk about giving students opportunities for high intellectual performances, well, to bring them out of the classroom into a training with people, you know, with peers and with, with other adults who they don't know, that's a great opportunity for them to excel. All right, now share your sentence with the class using this frame. Here are my words, blank, blank, and blank. This is my sentence. So if you want to share, raise your hand and say it like this, okay? Every day I would come to school and I would see Mr. Fryer up there, and the kids would be rude to him. But then, like, um, in this program, I, I had learned that they take at least, like, eight to, no, six, six to eight hours to come up with just one day of lesson plan and and it's like a whole lot actually when i was up there it was it was kind of fun i was nervous but i couldn't couldn't show it because i wouldn't be professional and um it just i felt proud being being up there you know teaching the kids and then walking around and um asking them if they need help and all that so the idea of feeling a sense of pride, and, and Marcus in the beginning said it was the best day in his life. It is just being seen and feeling that you have the skills to contribute and to really bring yourselves into that idea of high intellectual performances. So I want to thank Yvette for giving us such a great overview of the work. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. I had an insight about learning because so often we forget to think about the learning side or the relationship side, and we don't always put it together. So we have about 20 minutes for questions and answers. So I'm going to bring you on out here, and I'm going to get okay. out your way. Okay. <laughs> questions, right. comments? Epiphanies, uh, comparisons, yes. How do you work with teachers who, I feel like this requires a lot of 
um, understanding on the teacher's part, especially of the subject matter and being able to get kids to this other level. So how do you work with teachers that might not be qualified for this? Sounds like a familiar question, like we just had this question this morning. We first go now, I will say that we start with the Common Core Standards because even the way you just described that is exactly what the standards are expecting, that the teachers have a high level of understanding of their discipline, of their content, that they can infuse it with high intellectual, not, I won't say performances, but thinking, high thinking skills. So how do we start? We start by just like students, teachers want to know how is this relevant and meaningful? So every teacher really wants their students to do better. They really do. I, I really don't know any who don't. You know, and the idea is many, though, have this sense of fear that they don't know how to do it. So we also start with, what do you think we ask the teachers before we start with them about their what? Yes. Just like the students. What are your strengths? What, have your, what are your interests? What are the things that you do in your content area that you feel you're really good at? And now we're going to bridge from that to show how you can use that within your discipline as a way of engaging students. But the other side of that is we do an awful lot around the science of learning. We do cognitive science. We do neuroscience. I had another video for another time, but it's on our website, you can see it, where these little fifth and sixth graders are teaching neuroscience to teachers. They're talking about neurons and axons, and why not? You see, that's the thing. When teachers see that the students get so interested, they become more interested themselves. And that's how it starts happening. But also, as they learn more about learning, then they feel that they have the armor, they have the tools, the understandings they need to really press the right points for, for high performance. And that's really what they're in there for. The more that happens, the better they feel. The better the teachers feel, guess who else feels better? The students, right? Yes? Never need a microphone before. <laughs> uh, that the term high performance needs some unpacking even in and of itself. What are our right. mental models of what high performance that's is? Exactly. Is it the image of a kid sitting down staring at a piece of paper and filling out the right bubbles? Or mm -hmm. is it an image of, wow, I mean, when we think of the gifted program, that often conjures up a different image exactly. of, wow, look at what those kids are doing. Mm -hmm. Look what they're performing. Look what they're, uh, they're defending. Exactly. Um, if we were to see images of what students are doing at the end of the semester, at the end of the year, right. and being able to say, wow, Look at what they're able to do. How are they able to do that in order to change that overall uh, approach for teachers? That's exactly right. And that's why we've been using this term. This is about gifting all students. It is about gifted education for everybody because that is exactly what immediately that conjures up. People see inquiry. They see project-based learning. That's so much better than just saying high performance, but always keeping intellectual in there because that is what it's about. It is about intellectual development. Yes. Why do you think uh, sorry? Why do you think instrumental enrichment has not become uh, popular in our schools? I know it is such a valuable it tool. Is, it is so awesome, and, and I'll and, tell you. And the you. fact that you're dealing with, uh, for those of us who deal with students who are not English learners, uh, right. you have all the graphics and the pictures, it's and then you can help them to think. I, I just don't understand why. I can Even tell you one big reason. The United States is into efficiency. 
Oh. And C to do, i.e., instrumental it, it enrichment. First time. of all, it takes three periods a week, mm -hmm. which means which period does it come out of, right? Especially in secondary. See, it's mm -hmm. easier in elementary school. Teachers have the kids, they can eke it out. But when you're getting to middle and high school, they're saying, where are we going to take it out? And yet, they will do more remedial classes. They find those in a minute, right? But so that has been a big a big drawback is just the orchestration of it. But the other part is, you know, it takes two to three years to That's be correct. really trained in IE. That's true. Right? Yeah. So by the second year, you're pretty, you're really good. You can give, uh, you know how to ask the right questions. You can think about thinking. But it takes it the lots of yeah. hours to get there. And you're not getting any credit for that, meaning, you know, it's not like a college course, although it is taught Toro College, a few colleges are teaching it now, mm -hmm. but that's why. It's invaluable. Because I'm telling you, do you know that in Brazil, the whole Bahia, the entire, all the schools in Bahia do IE. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Venezuela as well, and Venezuela and China, it's a lot of places, but here, because, you know, you got to be fixed. Way in the back to Wilson, and then over here. Okay. Thank you. So first of all, I, I love the work and I, and I love the idea of teachers thinking theoretically about their practice. But I'm wondering how we um, intervene in the intellectual inertia and the economic inertia behind these sort of deficit frames, right? There's, you know, I work within a nonprofit, I work for several, and in many cases, you know, our bread gets buttered by attending to the deficits That's when right. it might be the frame deficits, when it might be more interesting to look at it historically in terms of you know, there's consistent patterns of economic underdevelopment and resource allocation. So how do you get something like this in place early enough and get it broadly enough disseminated such that it's able to, over time, begin to um, push back against its inertia, which is, you know, that train has been rolling for a long time. Right. And there's real winners and losers, right? So how, do we, how do we talk about this maybe in a broader frame of democracy or something such that people don't Social take this as something right. individualistic and we can get aside all this as sort of intentionalism and get down to what are the consequences. Right. Well, there are th several things going on now that's going to push this agenda. One is the assessments that are being created for the Common Core, right? So you have Smarter Balance, you have the Park Group. They are, I'm on one of the committees for the Park Group. The whole idea is to say, we've got to be thinking about what is going to show us that kids are really getting these standards. Filling a bubble is not going to show you how they're persevering through argumentation. You're not going to get that in a bubble. So that means you have to think of alternate ways of assessment, which then means we have to be looking at alternate ways of teaching, which means we have to think about our children differently. So that's really pushing the conversation. It's still going to take a while. But the other is that as that policy changes, and that's one of the things I was really hoping with this book, wouldn't it be great if districts got money for how many strengths they found in their students, right? Because if that became the criterion, guess what? You'd be finding strengths like crazy, wouldn't you? You'd be finding. And so that's part of the issue. The other is that President Obama last year did come out with a new, um, what did he call it? It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, where it was looking at, not deficits, but his point is, when you look at, if there are so many African-American students who we're saying are underachieving, 
He doesn't want to allocate money for finding that. He wants to know why, though. What is it that's causing that, and what do we have to do differently? That's different than saying we're going to be doing turnaround schools and, you know, all of that other stuff. But it is going to push the conversation. He's hiring somebody to be in charge of that whole practice. It's an executive order. And that executive order then is going to have different kind of policy connected to it that should have implications not just for African-American kids, but for all kids who are underperforming. So those are the kinds of things. But the last thing I will tell you that really starts at the district level it's, it's got to start at the superintendent's level where they're setting out a vision that literally says, in our district, our vision is to find high intellectual performance in all students so they can meet their fullest expectation. If that becomes the district's vision, and, and Francesca, you can, you can tell us, right? She's in uh, San Francisco, right across the border here, and uh, that's where Carlos Garcia came up with Beyond the Talk. And that is right, literally written in the uh, strategic plan. High intellectual performance. This is what we expect. Looking at children who speak a second language differently, not as deficit, but really, and really also if you knew neuroscience, you would know that if a student comes in having learned another language from birth, they are much more facile at learning many languages, including English more deeply. I mean, the brain is structured for that to happen. So those are the kinds of things that I see some promise coming, but thanks for the question. Well, so I, so I work for facing history in ourselves, but I mean, ah. this, but this is an internal conversation that we're uh, wrestling with ourselves, so I just mm -hmm. think it's it's important to recognize how deeply people get connected to a certain uh, notion or way of doing things. So right, so, yeah. right, right. Uh, okay, right. Thank you. So, um, I would so that it's called the White House. Um, Initiative on Educational Excellence for right. African Americans. Thank you. You just happen to have it right yeah, there? I, that do. is pretty. I do. Um, I'm the founder of the California Alliance of African American ah, Educators. And, okay. uh, we just had a professional development breakfast. Um, I'm so Saturday. glad you did. So you have yeah. it right there. So we have it right okay. here in a little folder. Um, but I went through the STEP program a thousand years ago here. Um, and um, I maintain that we need to start with teacher prep. Um, I think that Absolutely. the book should be required reading yeah. for teachers in pre-service programs. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are you doing um, with NK? I keep saying I don't understand why are they certifying horribly, you know, I mean, schools of education that are doing a poor job of training teachers mm -hmm. to work with, you know, I'm just saying black and brown students because mm -hmm. that's my interest most, mm -hmm. um, especially African-American students. So what, what kind of conversations are you having nationally with NCAID and other um, accrediting organizations um, that is a good question. Um, around how to get teachers before they ever harm kids? Right, <laughs> right, right. Um, I personally have not had any of those conversations with those organizations. Different colleges have come to me. Uh, I know a teacher's college, they're using the book now as, as required. But remember, that's already graduate school. You know, that's not the undergraduate program. 
but there are some other uh, schools that are using the book that way. But it is a bigger conversation. It is what are we saying about teacher preparation that really gives them the understanding of the science of learning and the impact of culture on learning and the idea of the things that are barriers that are threatened. They don't have those conversations. I know I was looking at some school's urban program and it was amazing that it said nothing about culture. The whole program said nothing about culture, said nothing about, uh, well, but more than anything, it said nothing about promise either, you know, about these are the kids who have great promise. So my point is I'm not sure how to get that, that word out there. It usually comes from other places, but that's a good point, and maybe we can talk later. Well, I, I yeah. just turned that and said, that's a board conversation. We yeah. ought to be talking about Yeah, that's so true. I will send that off. Okay. Board. So right. That's great. Great. There was a hand here and then over here. Hi. I just was wondering if you could share some of your experiences and maybe early learnings from the international initiative that you mentioned earlier. About uh, the, the technology and sharing teacher oh, the, and students. Across the, the water. Yeah kinds of things. Well, we're really just starting that now, but I will tell you that I have been working, uh, I guess, about two years over in England, and they have a whole effort that's called Thinking Schools. And it really started as a for-profit teacher training program that then grew into this, not a for-profit anymore, but uh, it's also through uh, Exeter. So Exeter has joined in there, and the whole idea is and it's really funny because when they came up with the term, people were saying, but of course schools should be thinking schools. But no, the idea was how do you put the focus on thinking and then what do you do with the thinking that got into this idea of shared technology. So when I was just over there in June, they, are, they have similar kinds of things going on through this thinking schools. But the other part that's interesting is they last year redid their website. And what they did is now they called it Thinking Schools International. Now, just because they put international on their website, they now are working in, uh, I, I can't even tell you how many international countries. They're, they're in Ethiopia. They're in, um, they're, uh, they're in India. They're in South Africa. They're, just because they put international. But the point is that these countries are saying, Yes, we need to be having internationally this conversation, which means if we're really going to get students ready, just like they're doing now, meaning uh, you all know in certain companies now, you can never leave your house and your partner is sitting over in South Africa working with you and you literally are working for the same company or just two different. So we are just starting that effort now in terms of going across the uh, the borders, I should say, across the ocean. But we had started the last two years was just continental USA. Now it's going to be the international. So we go over, we talk about pedagogy of confidence, we talk about habits of mind, we talk about all of that is being merged together. And so hopefully, you know, I will tell you um, one of the other places we're hopefully going to also start doing work with is Scotland. I don't know if you know, but about... Scotland, actually about six or seven years ago, came out with it's called a Curriculum for Excellence. And they literally have it's called that because it's for everybody and the expectation is that excellence is for everybody. It's just that's what it's written and in it it is about high levels of activities, habits of mind, same kinds of things that we're talking about. That is literally in their 
that's written in their curriculum, and you know everybody has the same curriculum there. I mean, it's, it's a, so. Hi. I mean, a question. I just wanted to make a comment about teacher, teacher training, and teacher education because I have a teaching credential. I was a teacher for many years. But now I have the good fortune of being a principal. And I think one of the great things about being an administrator is that you get to hire teachers and you look, I look, for teachers that are going to meet the needs of the students in my community. And I ask them, point out, tell me what you think is the role of teachers in social justice mm -hmm. and, you know, closing the achievement gap. And I have to say, I have to say about Stanford that for some reason the teachers that go through the training here uh, doesn't matter what color they are, but they seem to have a real drive to close the issue, but just mm -hmm. to provide excellent educations mm -hmm. for the children in our communities. So there is a lot of things going on, and mm -hmm. it's by all of us coming to these kinds of discussions and saying, what, what is my role right. and in education to make sure that we provide those kinds of experiences for our children? Right. And then saying, I'm not going to take any teachers, because sometimes in urban districts like ours, um, you don't have 150 applicants for every right. position, especially in special education and math and sciences. Mm -hmm. But I know that I've made a commitment to not hire anybody but the very best teachers for my students. So we are doing a lot. And she is. I can tell you that. Right. I, I, I'm glad you said that, though. Other groups are joining the efforts outside of education, like the Southern Poverty Law Center has this great curriculum that they're coming out with in the fall that really looks at taking issues like identity, taking the issue of social justice, and making it part of the curriculum, but using high levels of thinking as part of it in the applications, just in the same way we're talking about. And we're going to be uh, using that work in, in our work as, as well. So other groups are trying to do that as well. Did you have a question? Or were you just signaling me about time? <laughs> So I just want to uh, thank everyone for coming. One more round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for staying and being here. Thank you.